in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lance. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me encourage you to go to your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Um, finishing off where we were last week. Um, so if you have a pew Bible in front of you, it'd be great if you turn to page 911. 911. I'm going to read the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were to gather together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's just pray one more time. Spirit, I ask you to come. You are welcome here. You are needed here. And we pray that you, by your Spirit, will have freedom to work. Whatever is of self, whatever is maybe stuff that is sinful or grieved or could quench the Spirit, I pray that we would repent of those things, humble ourselves before you, And just allow you the freedom to be here powerfully, supernaturally in our presence. And help us to step into that presence. Pray for the weight of what it is to preach your word. I pray for your help in doing that. I pray for your spirit to help do that. And also I pray for the weight of what it is to listen to your word be taught. And may we not just be so distracted that we just drift off into another place in these moments. But God, we pray that we would feel the weight of what it is to hear your word, not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. So Spirit, come and Spirit, have your way. And God, will you be glorified? May you take center stage. May you be the only one that we see, the only one that we hear, the only one we worship, the only one we adore, the only one we are obsessed with in this room tonight. All of me just disappear and fade in the background. All of man or woman fade and disappear into the background Whatever is of you, then come in power, come in glory, come fill this place with yourself. And I ask this and pray this in your name and everyone said, 
Amen. Acts chapter 2, the last few verses. You remember um, last week, last Sunday night, we were in Acts chapter 2, but we looked at the first half of that chapter together. And we saw last week that the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came in power. The Holy Spirit came and filled people. The Holy Spirit breathed life into the early church. Remember we said last week that he breathed life into all types of people. So it didn't matter if you were a servant or if you were a man, if you were a woman, the Holy Spirit breaks through all cultural, social, gender, and religious divides. So it doesn't matter if you're young or old, whether you're male or female, or what class or what background you are from, Holy Spirit was poured out powerfully, and so began the early church. And there were many signs and wonders, and many got saved. In fact, 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people responded to the altar call, came forward, and 3,000 people turned up to do church. And if you're out this morning, and you heard Karen's sermon in chapter 4, just a couple of chapters later, you will know that that number grew from 3,000 to 5,000. And again, that's not including women or children in the midst of that. God is on the move. This is a movement of God. And every time there's a movement, there's always a move. Movements move. Movements don't stand still. God doesn't stand still. When God comes in a movement, he moves. I wonder, thinking about 3,000 people who turned up for church, I wonder what you would do if 3,000 people turned up for church here tonight. Like, what would you do? Other than complain it's a bit cramped and tight in here, but what would you do if 3,000 people turned up for church? If after my preach last week, 3,000 people responded, what would you do? I'd resign. I would just kind of go out on a high. I would spend the rest of my life giving seminars about how you can give a sermon and 3,000 people come to faith. I'd write a book and I'll be at the back to sign my book at the end if any of want to do that, how to get saved and bring 3,000 people in the kingdom of God. I'd just keynote seminar around the world. That's what I would do. What would you do if 3,000 people turned up to church? What would you do? We'd probably, in our generation, Insta story it. We'd probably go all over social media. Like We would light up social media with what had happened. We would love that. We would love that. We would probably boast and we would probably brag about 3,000 people turning up to our church. What does a church of 3,000 people need? I want you to dream. I want you to be wild here in what you dream. The sky is the limit. But what would our priorities be if 3,000 people turned up to church? What do you think our priorities should be if 3,000 people walked in through the doors tonight? Do you think this is a big enough building? I've been reading this passage all week and thinking about this and walking past the building thinking, I love this building. Like, I love this building. I love the character and the history and everything of this building, but it's a bit small for 3,000 people. Like, we could maybe knock it down and build a five-story church or something. I don't know. Or probably what we'd realistically need to do is go to a new site, get a massive site and build a massive state-of-the-art purpose-built church with a massive car park. Because you can remember, can you imagine getting 3,000 people to park their car around here? Like, I don't know how many is in here tonight, but it's a nightmare to park your car around Willowfield, isn't it? So we'll get a state-of-the-art, purpose-built, massive warehouse. We'll work on our brands. We'll work on our new name. Don't know what we'll call it. 
We'd have a massive car park with a massive staff out there directing you into our massive church. We'd have a massive welcome team that would meet and greet you on the way in to our 3,000-seater sanctuary. Behind me would be 4K screens. We would have the state-of-the-art sound system. You'd be sitting in the most state-of-the-art, most comfortable, most luxurious chairs that you could imagine. You might even be able to recline in your big chair sitting out there as well. As you sip your coffee that you picked up on your way in from our hipster brew bar, as you cock in with it. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Now I've got your attention as we think about church. Now I've got your attention. We'd build big, bigger church, build a big reputation. We'd add a bunch of great ministries. We'd add a bunch of programs. Like what ministries do you think we would need? What programs do you think that we would need? Just let your imagination go wild with that one. Like with four services here on a Sunday, I think we'd ramp that up. We'd have 10 services on a Sunday. Why not with a 3,000 person auditorium, theater-style church. We just ramp that up. Just imagine what you could do with all those people, with all those resources. Imagine all the programs and ministries and needs that you could meet if there was that size of a church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Here's the thing, though. If you notice in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, the early church has very different priorities than what we might have or that I've just given you there. Very different priorities. They would do a very different style of church than we might do. And here's the danger with my tongue in cheek because I wanted to take you on a journey. Just wanted to take you on a journey so you would lose yourself in the imagination of what that awesome church might look like. I want to take you on a journey to kind of trap you into the way that we think. Because that's the way I think. That's the way I think. And the danger with thinking about that is that according to Acts chapter 2, that's not the church. And that's not to say that large churches or mega churches or 3,000, 5,000 person churches aren't biblical or that they aren't going to be blessed or used by God. I'm not saying that. But the danger is that when we get our mindset on of what we would do and the priorities that we would bring to that, sometimes they're not always in sync with what God has here in Acts chapter 2. Do you want to know how you do the church in Acts chapter 2? You just need four things, four things to be devoted to. You see them all there in verse 42 of Acts 2. So here we go. Number one, be devoted to teaching. Be devoted to fellowship. Be devoted to breaking of bread and be devoted to prayer. Devoted to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. I wonder were any four of those in your top five when you were thinking about what should we do if 3,000 people turn up at church? And the results of being devoted to those four things are this. You can see them in verse 43. Number one in verse 43, filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Second thing, if you devote yourself to those four, is in verse 44, that they were all together. They were united. Third thing is they were generous. Verse 45 says that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Fourthly, if you devote yourself to those four things, You will be a worshipping church. Look at verse 46 and 47. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes 
ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And finally, if you do those four things, those simple four things, then you will be growing daily. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Devote yourself to those four things. If you want to be a healthy church. But I guess in our heads, we think that's not the things to be devoted to. If you want to grow a successful, thriving, impressive church. I remember reading a number of years ago what it is, the stages of church growth and church decline. Here's the four stages of church growth and church decline. Stage one is a man stage. You have a man or a woman who comes along and they inspire the church. They give a vision. They instill a sense of excitement and passion and enthusiasm into that church. And with vision and with biblical teaching and with the presence of God, then things begin to grow, both spiritually and numerically. Then we come to the second stage. And the second stage is the movement stage. Movement stage. A church catch that vision and it gets impacted and it gets inspired and people get saved and people want to get involved and people join the church and things move forward. There's a movement. Things start rolling forward. Then you come to the third stage and the third stage is the machine stage. And the main in the machine stage, things grow bigger, things get bigger. The church get bigger, more people start to attend. And so there's a need for more activities, a need for more programs. People consume in the machine stage rather than contribute. And so we need more structures. Things need to be managed more and things have to be more pragmatic. What works stays or gets added to. The machine stage tries to maintain growth and its reputation. Then you come to the final stage, and it's the monument stage. We realize often too late that all we've been doing over the last number of years or decades is just simply rolling through the motions, just ticking the box, just turning up, just doing church, just going through the conveyor belt of ministries and programs and stuff. And it's difficult for busy people, and it's difficult for tired people to Keep that passion going. And so they become weary. They become tired. And all of a sudden, the great big massive church that we had this big dream for and all those programs that we had a dream for, things just slow to a halt. And things just die because people die and dreams die and passions die in the midst of that. And we just lost our way somewhere along the way. According to Acts chapter 2, if you want to remain a healthy, deep, biblical, spirit-filled, growing church, then you need to be devoted to these four things. You need to be devoted to teaching. You need to be devoted to fellowship. You need to be devoted to communion. And you need to be devoted to prayer. Those things. And I guess the church in Acts 2 was busy the same way we're busy. It's not that they're any different. We have just more stuff that we could do or more technology that we could add to our programs. And our machine is a lot more advanced, possibly. But they devoted themselves to these four things. And I'm wondering what it would look like if we, as a church, just got back to those four basic things. What would it look like if we got back to those four things? 
See in Acts 2 when it says about being devoted, a better translation of that is to be obsessed. Be obsessed with teaching, be obsessed with fellowship, be obsessed with Holy Communion, and be obsessed with prayer. I'm not going to do it tonight, so I don't want to embarrass you, so don't panic and don't be afraid at this moment. But I wonder if I ask for a show of hands. How many in this room tonight are obsessed with teaching? How many are obsessed with prayer? How many are devoted to prayer? How many are devoted to fellowship or holy communion? Like, it seems crazy to me that those are the things that we would obsess over and be devoted over. There's a whole lot of other things that we could add to the mix that we might be devoted with and obsessed with. But are these four things that we are obsessed with? Let's work through them quickly. What about teaching? What about teaching? Jen Wilkins, or Wilkins has this quote says this, there is a full-blown Bible literacy crisis in the church today. Our people don't know their Bibles. Bible literacy matters because it protects us from falling into error. Both the false teacher and the secular humanist rely on biblical ignorance for their message to take root. And the modern church has proven fertile ground for those messages. Because we do not know our Bibles, we crumble at the most basic challenge to our worldview. Disillusionment and apathy eat away at our ranks. People just don't know their Bible. People just don't know their Bible. Did a seminar last summer at the Sligo New Wine on this very topic. Give a lot of statistics to prove that, and it is frightening. But we just don't know our Bible. Or we just turn up at church and hope that I do the Bible bit for you and then we go and we do our other stuff during the week. Here's the thing. If you don't know your Bible, then you don't know God. And if you don't know God, then you don't know his promises. You don't know his guidance. You don't know his leading. You don't know his truth. You don't know his morals. You don't know his faithfulness. You don't know his goodness. If you don't know your Bible, you don't know God. And if you don't know God, then you don't know his purpose and will for your life. You won't know his promptings. If you don't know the Bible and if you don't know God, then you won't know intimacy with God. And if you don't know intimacy with God, then how do you dive deep into the spiritual gifts? How do you listen to God? How do you hear God? How do you worship if you don't know God? How do you pray? How do you do any of this that we're doing tonight if you don't know your Bible? How do you know how to grow and how to mature, and how to stand firm, or how to be rooted in God's word. If you don't know your Bible, then you won't know the love of Christ. You won't understand who you are in Christ. You won't understand your worth. You won't understand your identity. You won't understand your calling. You won't know how to endure. You won't know how to persevere. You won't know how to run the race. You won't know how to finish Well, if you don't know God, then you won't know your Bible. And if you don't know your Bible, then how will you know to live well, struggle well, or die well? How do you know anything about love or grace or mercy or forgiveness or hope? Basically, all we do if we don't know our Bible and don't know God is we just fumble through life. And some of us are happy and content to do that, just fumbling through our life. And you might kind of jump in at this point and go, like, Mark, seriously, like, it's okay for you. I'm a bit biased, by the way, because I love the Bible. Not because I'm special, but, well, I kind of have to love the Bible, don't I? Because it's kind of what I'm doing now. Nothing excites me more than to teach God's Word. 
Okay, nothing excites me more because I'm not trying to impress you with what I know. All I'm trying to do, literally, genuinely, is to instill in you a passion to do what I do, only do it better. I want you to be able to hold God's word in your hand and just say, this word is a life. And I am obsessed with it and I am devoted to that. That's all I want to do. But you might kind of jump in at this point and go, Mark, I'm not sure that that is what the early church needed. Like 3,000 people turn up and we're going to go all hardcore Bible study on them. I, I'm not sure. In fact, if we're going to do a, a priorities of, of any of these things, I, we get fellowship, the second one, fellowship. I'd throw fellowship in top there and let's just kind of do a Willowfield barbecue. Let's just do some kind of food thing. Let's just do some kind of entertainment thing. Let's do something to get the people in and keep them happy. And then at some point we'll do some Bible stuff. That's not how the early church Start it. It's not how it grew. It's not how it thrived either. It was devoted, obsessed with God's word. See, 3,000 baby Christians need God's word. Listen to this from Hughes, who's commentating on Acts chapter 2. Love this. These 3,000 baby Christians were continually devoting themselves to God's word as it came from the apostles. These new Christians, under the reign of the Holy Spirit, were hungry for God's word. They could not get enough of it. Being filled with the Spirit and being filled with God's Word go together. It's the Word and Spirit stuff we were talking about last week. Where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's Word reigns. The backbone of a healthy Christian life is teaching. Believers must make sure they are feeding on the teaching of God's Word. It's why it's important to be at church listening to God's Word being taught. It's why it's important to join a life group. It's why it's important to go along to an alpha. It's why it's important to go along to word to action. It's why it's important to find any opportunity that you can have where you're together with other people working through the Bible together. The second one that we're supposed to be obsessed with or devoted to is fellowship. So I'm going to come back to fellowship. We're going to end with fellowship. So we'll skip to the third one. The third one that we come to is communion. Or the breaking of bread. So what you had back in Acts chapter 2 was initially the group of believers would meet. Not all 3,000 were always in the same place. They would split off into little groups, little home groups or little house groups. That is what they would do. And they would have a meal together. They would share a meal together. I love that sense of community. I love that sense of togetherness. It's a sense of just doing life together. And we're not always good at that, but it is doing life together. Some of the greatest friendships that I have, some of the deepest friendships I have, some of the most life-giving friendships I have, start it and continue over a simple meal. It's not always fancy, but it doesn't have to be fancy because it's about the people around that table. There's something powerful about being around the table with those types of people who just give life into your world. And you can do that. Just have a meal with someone. But after they had their primary meal, they would have kept some of the bread and some of the wine and they would have had communion together. They would have shared communion, Holy Communion. They would have shared the Lord's table or what some of us call the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is just a fancy word for thanksgiving. So this was a meal of thanksgiving. So they would gather together and they would give thanks or they would celebrate Jesus. 
His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And they would wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus. That's a beautiful example to live round. The reason it's a beautiful example to live round is because in those moments and in those meals, the center of attention is not the people necessarily around the table and is not even the food per se, but it is the fact that you are looking at or remembering Jesus in that. And there's something beautiful about that and there's a mystery in that as we come around the table and as the presence of Jesus is there. But there's also something humbling about it as well. It's humbling because if Jesus is at the center of your thoughts and the center of your meal and the center of your social life, then there's not a lot of room in that for your own ego or for your own pride just gets rid of that and we remember who we are in Christ. It's a beautiful example of the early church we're setting for us. Beautiful example. Prayer is the next thing that we come to. Wonder how obsessed you are or devoted you are. You might think we as a church are obsessed and devoted with prayer because we're always asking you to sign up for something from the front. But we want you to obsess over prayer and be devoted to prayer. Here's a quote from Chambers. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else that we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results. Sound familiar to anyone? We don't want to wait on God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. Praying is acknowledging a dependency on God. Again, it is setting aside our ego. It is a setting aside our pride. It is a setting aside the skills and the gifts and the abilities and talents that, that we have. But it's setting that all aside and saying, God, I depend on you. I need to depend on you. Every breath I have, I depend on you. Every beat of my heart, I depend on you. Every step that I take, I depend on you. Everything in my life, every decision I make, everywhere I go, I depend on on you. And we need to be depending on God, surrendering every area of our life to God. Because I don't know if you're like me, you ever try to manage your own life? You ever try to run your own life? You ever try to do it your way and just say, God, I've got this. If I'm stuck, I'll come to you. Like how well does that always end? How well does that go for you? Prayer is a dependency on God. It's also a relationship with God. It's an intimacy or it's a friendship with God. Hughes, again, commentating on Acts 2, says this, when the Spirit reigns, the heart of God's people move upwards towards Him, and their relationship with Him intensifies. I want that. I want to, when I come to pray, not to be looking around me, but for my heart to be moved up towards God. And I want my relationship with God to intensify in those moments. And I want to do that out of a sense of delight, not a sense of duty. Like if you got my email during the week, I've said, in a, like imagine what it'd be like in the busyness of life and the busyness of our church if we intentionally carved in time to pray. Not because there's an event on, not because of a hundred days, not because we're trying to fill slots, but what if we intentionally did that for no other reason than we just want to spend time with God and delight in that and see that as a delight and not a duty. That would be a beautiful thing. That would be a significant thing. That would be a powerful thing for us as a church. 
Okay, let's land at this sermon and let's go to the second devotion or the second obsession, but let's use it as our last, that one of fellowship. Fellowship. Do you want to learn a Greek word tonight? Yes. I heard you kingly shout at me there. Love, I love how you people are with me. Love how you're always with me. Let's learn a Greek word tonight. So you can impress someone saying, if you forget everything, you go, you taught me a Greek word tonight. The Greek word is koinonia. Can you say it? Koinonia, well done. It's a word that was basically invented in Acts chapter 2. So before Acts chapter 2, that word did not exist. And it was invented for the very reason of what is happening in terms of fellowship here in Acts chapter 2. And every single time we see it, every single time we read it, there's other places in the New Testament you'll come across it, it always has to do with sharing. It always has to do with a sense of generosity. And that's exactly what's going on in this. That's how they fellowship together, through sharing and through generosity and through unity together. And here's the thing. Generosity is a window to our heart. You've always heard people say, like, if you were to, if you want to know what's priorities in your life, have a look at your receipts of the last week. Have a look at your, I don't know where you do your shopping, whether it's online or whether it's in an actual store with an actual person, going old school. But wherever it is and you have receipts or you can look at your invoices, like what are you spending your money on? Or if you could record your time, what are you recording your time on? Those things are a window into our heart. And what we do with the money we earn or the things we have or the time that we devote to other things or even devote to other people are a window into what are the priorities in our heart. Don Carson has this helpful quote that says this. Do you decide, how do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a set percent, they say 10% of your income to the Lord's work, however begrudgingly, and then regard the rest of your income as your own? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward so that all the money you earn is ultimately his? Are you delighted when you find yourself able to put much more of your money into strategic mission or ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? As your compassion, has your compassion deepened over the years so that far from being cynical, you try to take concrete steps to serve those who have less than you do? At what points in your life do you cheerfully decide for no other reason than you are a Christian to step outside your comfort zone, living and serving in painful or difficult self-denial? So we're talking money. No one wants to talk money. That's the awkward bit where look at the carpet or look at something else. But what do we do with that? How, how generous are we? Like how generous are we? How generous are we compared to the early church? Do we live the same way the early church did? Have we the same priorities as the early church had? Are we devoted or obsessed to the same thing that the early church we're devoted and obsessed to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the communion or the presence of God, prayer or intimacy with God. Are those the things that we want to go away from here tonight and go, that's what I want? Because here's the thing, all the signs and wonders, all the worship, all the generosity, all that flows from these things. They flow from these four priorities. Here's what I've done in my sermon tonight. I've resisted an urge that a preacher 
has to end now. Because what I should do is go, here's six steps to how to be more generous. Here's six steps to how to read your Bible better. If you're not reading your Bible, why are you not reading your Bible? Hands up, who's not reading your Bible? Name and shame people. I'm not going to do that. Here's a course. You want to sign up to a course? I've got a course, a four-week course you can go to learning how to fellowship better with other people. You want to know how to pray? Then join our prayer course. I'm resisting the urge to do that. And the reason I'm resisting the urge to do that because as I read Acts chapter 2, I think there's something the Holy Spirit is breaking in people's hearts, is softening in people's hearts, or is doing in people's hearts. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with here's six steps to do whatever. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with looking practically. Like, how, how do I give generously in my circumstances? How do I pray in the busyness of my life? There's nothing wrong with that. And maybe one day we'll come back and revisit those four things in a very practical way. But here's the last thing I want to do tonight. The last thing I want to do tonight is just beat you into these four things. And you go away and that's the four things that you have to do. I want to give space to Holy Spirit. We get to do that in our worship time. Space for the Holy Spirit just to soften our hearts. Just to challenge us and just to chip away and convict us as to what are our priorities. And we go back to the very first question I asked you. If 3,000 people walked in through these doors, how would you do church? What priorities are you? I've just made you all leaders in this new church. And 3,000 people are knocking at the door. So team, what do we do? What's our priorities? Would we pick these four things? Or are we still convinced that these are the things that we should pick. I just want to allow Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to do a work in our hearts. Because here's the thing, we need the Holy Spirit to gently, sensitively be at work, exposing our priorities, helping us to change our priorities, or fix our priorities, or do something about our priorities, so that we're focused on these four things. And if I beat you in to do these four things, then you won't do them out of a sense of delight. You will do them out of a sense of duty. And that will work for a bit. It will work for a bit. But my experience of being in church, when you do something out of a sense of duty, it always ends in resentment. And you just walk away. You walk away from that thing. You walk away from that ministry. You walk away from that person. Or you walk away from that church. And I don't want that. So I'm coming tonight and I'm praying, God, by your Holy Spirit, will you expose the priorities of my heart and how I live or how I lead or how I do church and help my priorities be in sync with your priorities. And as a church, God, I pray, that you would come by your spirit and give us a sense of what your priorities are. Not only tonight, not only this week, not just for a season, but throughout the rest of our life. Because here's the thing, church, we can survive. I think we can survive just by doing church. You can be in any one of those stages. You can be in the man or the woman stage, inspired. You can be in the movement stage. You can be in the maintenance, maintenance stage. But you can still survive in, the maintenance, in the, the maintenance stage. You can just survive. But I don't want just to survive. I want to thrive. I want this church to thrive. I want we as a church family to thrive. Fill with the Holy Spirit.
I'm going to end with this quote from Scott McKnight. We need a move of the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to come and move us, to fill us, and to change our priorities. So here's the quote. We need the Spirit to live in community. If the Spirit comes, community will come. But somewhere along the line, kingdom became personal spirituality and Sunday gatherings became services. Somewhere along the line, the church became a place where individuals could gather on a Sunday for one hour. The impact is devastating for a generation that needs fellowship more than any generation in history. But there is hope. Because we can enter into the kingdom dream of Jesus all over again by asking once again for the spirit of Pentecost to fill us, baptize us, to swarm us, and to revolutionize us. So that we live as the early fellowship of Jesus' followers lived. The church life begins when we turn our minds, our hearts, and our hands towards God and ask God to flood us with the spirit of God. Is that your prayer? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh. Come and have your way and come and move. Help us as a church. Help us as a church to prioritize these things. To be obsessed with these things. And our God, we will admit that we are devoted and obsessed to so many things. Some of them good, some of them not good. But we need to be devoted to the right things and obsessed with the right things. So God, come and have your way in our lives. We go back to what we're doing with us 100 days. We are praying for an awakening in our souls. So Spirit, awaken our souls. Start in our heart. And awaken our heart to more of you. From that, may you spill out and leak out into the streets and into the city and into our land. Help us together as a church to fellowship well. To look out for each other. To love each other. To see church as more than just turning up for an hour and for a service. Because our social media is always littered with lives that are broken. Even last night, lives that feel so alone, with nowhere else to turn. So God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will breathe life, breathe community into this place. And do that for your glory. Do that for your honor. Do that for your name. Do that for your renown. We ask these things in your name and for your glory. And everyone said, Amen. Bless you.